available of Liberty Alliance podcast. Today we're going to talk about an issue that is near and dear to my my background and of course our, our guest background do a little bit of back to the future on on cuba and before we get to any of that uh, i want to introduce caleb mccary he's currently working as a vice president for policy engagement over at pax sapiens and he's going to tell us in a minute what that what that's all about it's an interesting organization does some phenomenal work and of course they have caleb there so it has to be good He's um, a longtime foreign policy expert. Uh, he's held many uh, interesting jobs over his long career. In fact, I met him on Capitol Hill many, many moons ago. He's been over at the U.S. International Development Finance Corporation. He was serving as senior professional staffer to the chairman of the Senate Committee on Foreign Relations. He was over in the House for a while. He was senior executive service also, and this is an issue we're going to talk a lot about, executive service appointee on the U.S. Policy Toward Cuba Commission. This is way back when, during the Bush administration. And he's held many other other posts that we'll talk about as well. Of course, he's also been involved in democracy promotion overseas, an issue that lately is getting a lot of, well, has received a lot of press during the prior administration, whether or not America should be doing that sort of thing. Anyhow, Caleb... Welcome. And, I, and he's also a friend and somebody, by the way, who in Washington, I'm, I didn't make many friends when I was in Washington, but Elam and I made a few, and Caleb was one of them. Uh, he, he's all around, all around good people and a consummate professional. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Jason, and it's wonderful to be here with you and, and to be talking about these things that we both care about. Tell us a little bit about how you found this path to this interesting career you've had in foreign affairs and national security. What, 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 you know, because you have a, you know, background and you, you like many things um, and you're extremely bright, but this is an area you've always really enjoyed. What, what drove you to this and what advice would you give to young people, by the way, who are considering something in this space? So in a way I was born to it. Um, mm. uh, when I was about eight years old, we had, moved back from Europe where we had been living and my dad was sitting in his chair reading a book as he often was and I went to uh, I went to him and I said hey dad so what what did you do for a living when we were living in Europe hmm. and he peered over his book and he said I was a spy son <laughs> um, so um, that was the first time I knew that um, my father was a deep cover um, uh, intelligence officer uh, in the Central Intelligence Agency um, when I was born um, and we were he was based in Europe but working in Africa um, and in, in Asia uh, mostly at the time um, so I grew up with interesting people around the table and art in the house and um, and so there was always a a bent, if you will, and an interest in 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 things international as a result. Mm. Um, and I particularly, um, it came really into focus for me around language, actually. Mm. When I was in high school, I, uh, a foreign language was a requirement, and I decided to take Spanish. And uh, that was a decision that um, opened in the end many, many doors for me and many experiences. And uh, I found that I, I had a knack for it. And uh, and in the end, really, you know, I'd, I'd studied Spanish in Spain. I wanted to I wanted to go to Latin America. And one of one one thing I had decided was when I was traveling around Spain as a young person, essentially with nothing else to do but be there. I remember thinking to myself two things. One is I'm an American, so I need to do things that are related to my own country. And I don't ever want to go to another country without having something productive to do. Hmm. And so I wanted to go to Latin America. And uh, at any rate, it's a long story, but I, that's, that's really how I got involved with things um, international. Um, in terms of advice for younger people, 
I think that learning a language is mm -hmm. probably the best thing you can do. And it doesn't have to be several. It can be just one. Um, nothing, nothing else can bring you closer to people uh, in another culture than being able to speak their language. Mm. Um, you can speak to them in English, but you know, in this case, if I'm speaking with someone in Spanish, it's a, it goes beyond the words. It, it goes to uh, the fundamental being of, of how people are and understanding them. Mm. So I would suggest that. And the other is to, you know, get your foot in the door. You know, I, I started out as an intern in a in a democracy promotion organization with no pay, sitting in a closet next to a <laughs> photocopier. So, you know, those are my two bits of advice for young people. <laughs> wow. That brings back memories. Before we jump into Caleb a bit, tell me a little bit more about I mean, I've, I've read all your dad's books. Um, thank you for that. They are a great read, folks. If you haven't read them, you should start. You won't be able to put them down. I think I binge read their books, your dad's books, in about two months. <laughs> so, oh wow, that's wonderful. Yeah, they they were fun. They were a really fun read, and um, a lot of good, rich, kind of tells you how Washington works and doesn't work, I guess, in certain yeah. ways, but how the world works also. And it's not the stuff you see in spy movies on television either. No, it's it's really good stuff. Well, my father was Charles McCary, and his novels, he was a writer, first and foremost. Mm -hmm. And his time in the CIA was, as he would describe it, grist for the writer's mill. <laughs> and so he believed that you should write about what you know. And so he wrote about that. And he tried to write as honestly as he could about it, as it really was. Um I remember his second novel, which you may recall, Mirnik, the Mirnik Dossier. Mirnik Dossier, yeah. And uh, so there's a there's a bit of a spoiler going on here. <laughs> um, is, that, is, that, is that the is that the Geneva Soviet spy one? Yes, that is exactly right. Uh, Mirnik, who was Polish, and um, the whole question of the novel was, you know, is he or isn't he um, a spy for the Soviet Union? And uh, the, the novel is unique in that it is written as a dossier, as a, as a file with, uh, you know, um, agents' reports and transcripts of, of taped conversations and uh, unique. No one's ever written a, a book like that uh, before or since. Um, but I remember, I, w I wasn't that old, but I read it and my father said to me, so... Was he or wasn't he? <laughs> I'm, I'm giving away the end of the book, but mm -hmm. I said, you know, Dad, it doesn't matter. He's dead. <laughs> That's awesome. He said, you're absolutely right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's a very, it, I, I, you, you, you also enjoy writing, and um, it's, it's just a fun read, and I, I could tell you have a lot of your dad in you. Uh, <laughs> well, I appreciate in, in, that. In more ways than one, but... Um, I will give folks links to those those books, folks who start reading some of these. Tell, tell us, before we jump into the subject matter, I mean, tell us a little bit also about this great organization you're working with, PAX uh, Sapiens. It's sure. Interesting, interesting. The Latin juxtaposition is good, too, but uh, I'll let you tell people what it's all about. Sure. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Um, so PAX Sapiens is a, is a small foundation based in Colorado. Um, it is uh, the... Um, part of a, a series of family foundations of a gentleman named Marcel Arsenal, who is very thoughtful um, and has, uh, over the years, done some extraordinary work. Um, as he told me when we first met, uh, one of the first things he worked on was, I think some of your, some of your listeners may, may recall, when Somali pirates were boarding ships and it was a big deal it was a problem um and the question was well what do you do about that um and how does the international community respond to that and so marcel actually um funded and participated in a lot of work including with the un and and, and other actors who were involved who, who were part of, of addressing this to come up with a framework that would 
help deal with this and to um, lessen the threat and resolve the issue. And it was actually quite successful. You don't, you don't hear about this so much anymore. But what I really respect about the man is that he didn't um, stop there. Um, he's, uh, he made his money in real estate and he realized that the real problem was that Somalia was desperately poor and was unlikely to get out of that situation unless they had uh, an economy developed. And so when people told him it wasn't possible, he, with his own money, um, started investing and in, in structuring the, uh, the banking, a banking uh, approach there that, for the first time, created a mortgage market wow. in Somalia, um, which uh, is still working. Um, and it's really only through that kind of, of development that we've seen people lifted out of poverty in the world. And so I, I have a great deal of respect for myself for that. Um, currently, um, the main focus of, of the foundation is on three things. One is pandemic prevention. I think everybody's gotten tired of the pandemic, <laughs> but uh, we shouldn't be tired of uh, dealing uh, with the notion that, you know what, it could happen again and it could actually be worse. Right. And we didn't do such a great job preventing it the last time. Um, we really should be prepared for the next one. And so he's put quite a bit of time and effort in, in, in working on that focus, which I appreciate. And, you know, pretty much everyone else has moved on. Um, the other issue, and this is how I came to be part of, of the foundation, was he has been working with um, uh, people in the private sector in Venezuela, um, trying to help Venezuelans come to a place where they can start moving their country forward in a better, more prosperous direction. I mean, the country is in a terrible state um, from being the anchor of, of the regional economy to now having an economy the size of Honduras. Mm -hmm. um, uh, there are a lot of reasons why that's the case. And so and in fact, um, even even uh, people who, you know, for example, his two senators from Colorado told him to stay away from it, that it was a poisonous issue. But he felt it was important. He had met a, 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 some, some people from Venezuela who were in the country and working on this, willing to put some of their own money into it. And so he is, he's done the same. Um, it's, a, it's, 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 a hard, it's a hard one to work on but I think it's important. Um, and finally, uh, he does not have any business interests in China, but he has a very fundamental concern, which is that going to war with China, I think everyone hopefully could agree is a terrible idea. Um, and, you know, particularly two nuclear powers going to war mm. uh, is an even more frightening idea. And the truth is, we fought a war with China in the 1950s in Korea, and it was horrible. Right. It was horrible for us, and it was horrible for them, too. And that was a pre-industrial China. So without being Pollyannish about it, what can we do to create enough connections and enough stability so that we avoid that? So that is really the, the main focus of, of the foundation these days. I don't know if that's a, helpful, but that's, that's the background. I think I understand better what basically the, the name behind the organization then is you're achieving, trying to achieve peace through some sort of understanding and rational, exactly. think, and rational yep. thinking, that sort of rational thing. thinking. Exactly. Mm -hmm. yep. Of course, politics is, is, is applies internationally as well as domestically, and it's hardly rational, but finding, finding people who are willing to think rationally in, in the midst of that is, is, the challenge. You know, one of the things I learned decades in DC, almost about 30 years, and Elam, who you also know, my wife. And love. Yes, uh, she, she sends her best, is that um, you, you learn pretty quickly, even though you come from a partisan background, that this is an imperfect process, and you're trying to explain this to people uh, what policy is and what 
you know, how you turn these mechanisms around and and try and sway them a certain way. And, and there's no such thing as a as a science, you know, in this process. It's politi- we call it political science, at least those of us who got political science degrees. But you mentioned, well, before we get into even Cuba, you mentioned Venezuela as a hard one. To, to share with people what you mean by that, how you know, how is it that you explain to folks who are not in this space how difficult it is to reach agreement and consensus in this type of work? So part of that, the, the difficulty is in the fact that there is a very real conflict hmm. in Venezuela. And it's a conflict that has been going on for in a in a very sharp way ever since Hugo Chavez was elected president and began to fundamentally restructure the political order in the country. And um, and it's a conflict which has caused great pain, actually, um, for many people. Um, uh, one of the great tragedies of Venezuela is that essentially the practically the entire middle class has left the country, mm. including young professionals. They're really not there anymore, and it's a country that invested a lot in, in, in having um, a very, very, very competent professional class. Um, and so what makes this difficult is the fact that that conflict is real and unresolved. Mm. I think less known and, un- and less understood is the other side of this. And that is, that are they're always, you know, as they say, take two to tango. Um, and there's also another side, which is the Chavistas and who they are and where they come from and why they exist um, and what is their view of the conflict and not just their role in it, but, you know, how they see it. Um, and I think that fundamentally what makes this hard to resolve is um, two things. One is a sense among those who have suffered um, from all of these changes in very real ways, including people being killed and, and tortured and other horrible things, that what has happened to their country is an aberration and can only be dealt with by reversing it. And going back to the way things were, which were arguably certainly much, much better. Um, and on the other side, not having quite that same memory of how things were. Um, uh, uh, and this is this has been something, you know, Jason, you and I and Alem have 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 worked our entire adult lives and careers on. Is what do you? How do you understand and how do you address this phenomenon of undemocratic left-wing governments hmm. um, and, and the consequences of that and, and conflict with them? And so if you don't understand, however, some facts about where the Chavistas come from, who they are, the root of this conflict, it's very easy to make it a very black and white assessment and to then make mistakes on how you deal with it. Hmm. Um, uh, and so that is, that. that's, that's, I think it's difficult because it's intrinsically difficult because of, of the degree of the conflict, but I think it's also difficult because a lack of being able to understand and therefore approach the problem um, in a more balanced way. Do, do you think in Washington today, compared to maybe 20 years ago, 30 years ago, or has it always been this way? Has it become tougher to get to that level of granularity with policymakers or staff 
or the demands either on the executive or legislative side, which there are differences in, in, the, in the roles people play there, but to get to understand and find a solution to a problem, you have to understand the background. Right. And my sense, maybe because maybe I'm just getting older, I find myself explaining some basic things that I would expect people to do. I mean, do, in the case of Latin America, we don't have time today to get into all of it, but I think this is this applies across the board. Do you find it gets it's harder, or has it always been part of the job where we have to get in there and explain these things to policymakers or vice versa to anyone, a stakeholder, private sector in that process? When you want to change the policy, you know, it doesn't happen easily. It's not it's not an easy process to do. It takes time. But despite that. Is it harder today or has it always been that way? I think it's always been that way. I think it's some of it's our nature as human beings. Mm. I think it's the nature of the policymaking process. I mean, look at the Cold War, which was the great conflict that you and I grew up with um, and how I really started my career, um, playing a, a very, very bit small part in one of the last, some of the last chapters of that Cold um, and there were a lot of people who worked really hard on it, who understood quite a bit of it, um, and, you know, individual pieces of it. And we put, you know, we certainly proved that we as a nation were able to sustain a multi-decade effort and policy to a successful conclusion, um, in that, you know, the Soviet Union collapsed, um, and the Berlin all came down and, and, and um, European nations that had been behind the, the Iron Curtain became part of the European Union, um, all unthinkable things. Mm. But remember, Jason, that the collapse of the Soviet Union came as a surprise. Right. Mm -hmm. And so clearly we didn't completely understand it, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, it was, uh, um, and I think that our desires and our our expectations sometimes are not aligned with reality. Hmm. Um, you know, all these years on the Eastern, former Eastern Bloc countries, of course, they're part of the democratic family of nations now, but they're still working through uh, that history. And including, you know, corruption, um, and uh, you've got, you know, we've got a, a hot war going on with Russia right now. Who would have um, thought? <laughs> yeah, who would have thought, right? So I think it's always hard to understand these things, but you're much more likely to make mistakes if you don't take a look at what's behind it. Mm. You're going to miss opportunities to influence things for the good. Is that kind of what you mean by never prejudging people that you never know who will end up being your friend? That's exactly right. That's exactly mm. what I mean. You've said um, that many times before. Yeah, I have. And I think it's one lesson I've learned in life. You know, where, 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 where that crystallized for me was when I was um, in my, my 30s, um, early, early 30s, it was, uh, I, I was played a, a logistical role in, in diplomacy uh, around uh, negotiations for the return of Jean-Bertrand Aristide to Haiti. And there were, um, uh, we, we brought up and supported a whole group of members of the, the National Assembly of Haiti from, from different political perspectives. And one of them was a gentleman who was a very hardline devaluist. Um, uh, who, who himself said that he wasn't a Democrat. Um, and, uh, and I remember judging him hmm. because of that and thinking, you know, I, how can I work with a person like this? Um, and he turned out to be actually, to have played a very courageous and constructive role in what, what was trying to be accomplished. It ultimately didn't work. But I was wrong. Mm. about him and it was because i judged him mm. 
And so it taught me a lesson that, you know, there's, you need to, you need to be open to, to, to talking to everybody, at least being open to understanding where they're coming from. Um, Cause you might find some opportunities to, to move things in a better direction. So if you do that. Along that same line, you know, you mentioned Venezuela was one of those three areas that your foundation works on that it was hard to work on. I think Cuba may take the cake. I mean, it totally takes. I the think cake. it takes the cake. Um, <laughs> and you know, I recently had, and by the way, I hundred percent agree with you. In Washington, you spend enough time there, and if you really want to find the successful people, the people that will get things done, I would say most of the time, if you've managed the relationship well, you've been good people, you've been honest with people. You've treated people with respect, even those you disagree with. You never know, especially in the legislative branch, but I think it's equally true in the executive branch. Who's going to end up being your friend, an ally, or someone that you need to move something important that you think needs to get yep. done? So take it to heart, folks. Don't go around pissing people off all the time. Yeah, a, yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> or, or engaging in palace intrigue and bad mouthing people, and there's, we could do another show on that too. But we're not gonna we're not gonna go down the rabbit hole on that. Yeah. One. But 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 back to Cuba a minute. And I had an experience like that. And you 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 know better than most people that I've for many years stayed away from even talking to people in Cuba. Uh, didn't bother. Didn't want to. Didn't deal with it. And circumstances would have it, or providence, or whatever you want to call it, forced its hand many years ago. And I have been, and we've been working on some things. And I've, I've been surprised. And I think they were more surprised than I was surprised, <laughs> um, especially in, in one particular case that we're working to bring an American home who has been down there for a long time, wrongfully imprisoned. And a case that's still pending, and even though there's progress, but it was—I mean, we're not going to sit down and break bread together that I know of. Um, but there have been some helpful people along the way, uh, even folks who I thought would never bother to even uh, talk to folks from my side. And you can explain yeah. to people why I'm saying that in a minute, because I'm setting this up so Kayla can tell us about the thankless task he had. <laughs> because it was thankless, man, of managing a process out of the State Department uh, that took a hard look at U.S.-Cuba policy from many different perspectives back during in the Bush administration. And it kind of brought together a lot of Caleb's background in democracy promotion, but it was bigger than that. I kind of saw that I thought was going to be a first step on potentially be conflicting uh, the Cuba process. But I want Caleb to give his, before I poison the well with my pre, you know, with my judgments about what, what happened there or didn't happen there. It was still a remarkable work product, but I know it must have been a thankless job. Tell people briefly, what, what was this commission? What did you all do? And did you think it accomplished what it set out to do? So, it was called the Commission for Assistance to a Free Cuba. And it was set up during um, the Bush administration to examine our policy from top to bottom and to ensure that all of the elements of the U.S. government were focused on achieving the objective of empowering the Cuban people to find a democratic future. So it was very high-minded and important effort um, to understand the circumstances that, that Cubans have lived in um, is, to, is to identify with them and want to help. Um, there was an underlying premise that the years of policy making were rusty after mm -hmm. many years of stasis um, and that what we needed to do was was break those gears free and get them working 
Um, and it was through, there were, there were two reports. Um, uh, the first report created the commission and it actually created the, the uh, job of uh, Cuba transition coordinator, which, which I was asked to fill. Um, and it also put in place a number of um, pressure um, uh, policies, including increased sanctions. Um, and it was, you know, the, the, when I got into the job, uh, I, you know, we'd reviewed the report and, it, and, and I, what I understood from it was that how it worked was you convened working groups from each of the relevant agencies um, and gave them tasks to do to look at pieces of uh, how we would help uh, in the present and in the future Cubans achieve a democratic transition. Um, and that in and of itself, the, the process itself, what was important, that was where you wanted people to think about, well, what, what are we doing now? What should we be doing? Um, and in the future, what would we actually do to help? Um, the, 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 the first report basically laid out the premise that, you know, while there would be pressure now when a transition was initiated and underway, there would be generous support from the United States government and people. And so the second report was basically we picked up on that and focused the effort on getting the, those working groups together. But it was more specific to what we would be doing now and what we could do in the future. And so there were a few things that came out of that. One was, to be perfectly honest, Jason, very few people in the U.S. government believed that such a change was even possible and were had to be, you know, were reluctantly drawn into this wow. effort. Um, and, but there were some things we put in there that were important. And, and in this case, they came out of the president's mouth. Um, and some people were not happy about it, but, you know, for example, um, we said clearly that change would come on the island mm -hmm. and that it would be Cubans in Cuba who would lead that change and without actually saying who they would be, right? Cause they could be anybody. And that we wanted them to know that as they undertook this process that they, it was on them to define their own future, but that they would find support from us as if they chose to do that. All of this was done in strict adherence to existing US law. And the law that governs this is the Libertad Act um, of 1996. Mm -hmm. And it, it lays out, you know, the triggers for changes in U.S. policy. Um, so it was a thankless task, hmm. but it was also an interesting task. And I think a lot of people understood, in the end understood that it was an exercise in, in, in trying to help us be prepared for such a moment, but also to, to try to generate some hope that it was even possible. Hmm. Um, you know, people, friends of mine, you know, only half joking tell me I, you know, I failed to get a, a democratic transition in Cuba. Hmm. Um, you know, so clearly it was not a success. Um, but I don't think it was an empty um, effort. And, uh, you know, uh, it's my hope that someday it may, may yet bear fruit. Mm -hmm. Now, what is the appropriate approach to get there? That's something you and I can talk about. And, and you know, I'm sure you have views on it as well. And certainly a lot of people do. And there's, there's debate. Um, I, I will say that I my, in my hope that Venezuelans can find a way forward, all Venezuelans, whether they're Chavistas or not, 
um, and, and to do it themselves. Uh, it's my hope that that could help Cubans as well. I mean, I, you know, the, the report process, I think, was useful. And I think folks who follow this should read it and understand it. Uh, some of us never thought it would lead to change in Cuba. I don't think it was designed for that. Some people I remember did think that. Yeah. And it's, it's, there's a natural tension into all of this built in that a lot of maybe listeners who don't focus on Cuba maybe are wondering, what are these guys talking about? But there's, there's a lot of things that we're leaving out maybe that kind of may crystallize for folks. I mean, the, the expectation, for example, that the U.S. would go in there and do something by force or, I mean, I know that the Cubans in Cuba didn't like this commission one bit. <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, Fidel Castro was calling you all sorts of names and calling uh, Condoleezza Rice had a few choice expletives. I mean, it, it was they, they weren't happy. He actually, with called, he actually called me a dimwit, Jason, which just goes to prove that he was. <laughs> I remember all of those. It, it was um, so the, the Cubans weren't happy with it, uh, but they don't know. You know, they're never happy with anything. Most yeah. well, most of the time. Although I think something is changing there, which we'll talk about in a minute. But I think there were these expectations, oh, this is going to happen. And there has been this expectation, at least in the diaspora with the Cuban exiles that are active in some of this, that somehow America was going to go fix this. I've never lived under that. I've never thought that. I've personally never wanted that. I, yeah. I've, I've always thought that change has to come from within. And people over there need to come to that decision on their own. And no amount of prodding or poking by America is going to make a hill of difference to this. And you may end up empowering, by the way, the wrong people. Yep. Um, and one of my biggest frustrations with U.S.-Cuba policy that I tell my Venezuela friends to hone in on is just be careful what you wish for. Yeah. Um, and you know the, those days of America, at least in Latin America, uh, that uh, people seem to think what would happen in a place like Cuba, they're mostly over. And in, in the process, we've had now almost two generations of people down there go through the, the, the system in Cuba. And we are no closer, uh, seemingly no closer to some type of a solution. I mean, what Obama did, again, he kind of put the cart before the horse, but I wasn't necessarily opposed to some of the things that he did. I just didn't like the order in which he did it. Right. Um, and some of the stuff he did maybe pushed the envelope legally here and there. But ultimately, I've said this many times, I'm, I'm glad he did something other than just talk about it, although I wish <laughs> it had been a different outcome. But, it, you know, where we are today on some of this, I mean, in the Cuban-American community, there's still some pockets of people who think, well, before I get to that, Recently, the Vatican, and this loops into Venezuela directly, but I want to focus this part on Cuba. They, they had Vatican News recently had, had a report out that I found super interesting. I had no idea that there were about approximately 40 peace processes underway all over the world. Hmm. Some of them are public, some of them are private. Some of this was, this was a study that was put together by a university in Barcelona and the Vatican, I think had a conference on this, and they talked about the different mechanisms that have been around and are still around for peace. And you know, there's many instruments for reconciliation. You know, there's a lot of instruments for transitions, as you know. Um, in the case of Cuba, you can't even get, and even though there are exceptions, there's most people will never sit down, at least those engaged in some of this, let's say the politicians, to talk to anybody over there. It's, it's just not gonna happen. Right. It, it, the poison or the political poison, I'm not saying poison, some of it's a lot of hurt. Some of it's, you know, there are a lot of people who would still like some justice. And Cuba's not a, you know, Cuba has done a lot of bad things to Americans, yeah. uh, people that you and I know. Yes. Um, they treat their political prisoners uh, horribly. They, you know, crack down on the opposition. There is pretty much no effective opposition in Cuba um, because it's still a totalitarian police state. But stepping above that, and I took a look at, quick scan of some of those peace mechanisms and transitional justice mechanisms. And they're, they're very different. You've been involved with some of these. Yeah. Um, you know some of these intimately well. Um, there have been some processes here in, in Latin America, in Colombia, 
Um, there's been a few here. Do you see this? I mean, fast forward now from the Bush administration and where we are today, so much has happened in the world. Fidel Castro is no longer around. Raul is pretty much hobbling along. The system down there seems to have been taken over by the, or will be taken over by the Espin Castro generation and some other groups. Is there any chance that these different stakeholders can ever get together? Forget about peace or transition or reconciliation, any of that stuff, just to talk to one another. Like, I've been criticized for talking to them about this Alina Lopez case. Yeah. And, and uh, some people think, Jason, you know, too bad, so sad. And I, I, dis I strongly disagree with that. You could never leave an American anywhere in the world that shouldn't be in prison in prison, yeah. especially not in a place like Cuba. But I, even I've been criticized for that, that kind of work and other work that we've done. What do you, I know you've thought a lot about this, but what do you tell people on both sides of this that can move the needle a little bit to get us beyond this old rhetoric that I've been hearing since I was a kid and I'm yeah. now 50-something? To at least from the U.S. standpoint, that's really what we want to focus on. We advance the U.S. interest down there. Well, first of all, I have nothing but respect for you, Jason, and the work you've done for Lena and so many other Americans who have been wrongfully and unjustly imprisoned abroad and, frankly, being completely and always um, literally for, for no compensation. And now you're, as you describe it, uh, being excoriated, um, stood by these people. So thank you for that. Um, and that's often what it takes to, to resolve these things. Look, um, I'll tell I guess I'll put it to you this way. So I was having lunch with uh, someone from the Cuban Intelligence Service. Um, and uh, I, I, I said to this person, I said, you know, you all have spent an incredible amount of time and money and effort on influence operations here in the United States. Influence our, our policymakers and, um, you know, um, and, you know, we want to influence you. <laughs> he looked at me and he said, you know what? Okay. That's better than telling us what to do. Mm. Mm. And so maybe that's a place to start. Um, and, you know, as we talked about earlier about you never know who your friends are going to be. Not to, you know, and you can't even understand an adversary unless you understand where they're coming from. Right. And you have to talk to them to really understand that. Um, uh, so I think that, and it's not, yeah, you know, I know that, you know, dialogue is a, is a bad word in, in the Cuban American community. Um, uh, and, but I think that talking about, you know, ha having conversations and beginning to understand where things are and where they can go is actually where you need to start. You know, some of the, some of them, I've met many remarkable lawyers over the years from Cuba who live in Cuba, they're not here. Uh, to my knowledge, most of them are really independent lawyers. I don't know about, you know, who knows what you get sometimes when you meet with Cubans, but one thing that you will pick up even from those that are, I wouldn't say they're anti-America, but there's just an underlying little resentment there, even if they're not happy with that over there, but they're not necessarily happy with how we handle it here. Yep. And it's maybe it's what you're saying, that we want to influence you. I, I don't know. I mean, I think over the years when I've engaged with lawyers in Cuba, one thing we've never done is... Um, told them how to practice their profession, for example. Yep. I mean, if you all want to practice law in that space, even though I don't see rule of law there at all, mm -hmm. um, it's up to you. 
I'll tell you how I practice law, then you can go figure out how you want to practice law. Right. Um, and all of them will confide, we want to change this thing. And I've spoken to some revolutionary, former revolutionary court judges, uh, people who maybe have sat in judgment of political prisoners and, and opposition people, and they feel bad about it. But one of them told me many years ago, you know, that's all I knew. Yeah. And it wasn't until they did it to me that I figured out what they were doing to those people. Yeah. I'm not going to say his name because I don't want to get the guy in trouble, but he's still down there. And now he's defending people who get arbitrarily detained and arrested. So that's a change right there. I've, it's there. I've seen it. And I've asked him, well, what's wrong with how you, know, you say you want our help, but then at the same time, I can't go there. So they'll never even, I can't even go visit my client. And he says to me, doesn't matter the fact that you're willing to talk to us and not lecture me. And I never, and by the way, we, it's not that I, I didn't know. I jumped into that space without knowing what other people in my position had done. And a lot of times from a, from a U.S. now, selfish U.S. policy standpoint and program, programmatic standpoint, even some of our programs are out of date. If they say they do what they claim they do, they really don't do a good job of it because it's not really having, I think, an impact where it needs to happen down there uh, if, if we're going to do these sorts of programs. Yeah. And it's not exciting stuff for most people. At least, at least I enjoy it because it gets my creative juices going and it seems like you're trying to make some connection with people who, for some bizarre reason, we can't get past one another. Um, uh, it's because of what you're saying, the whole question of dialogue or whatever that means. I don't even know what that means. I think that's something yeah. from the Cold War, the 80s or 90s, I don't know. Yeah. A, a process that hasn't even happened. But where do you, I mean, where do we start something like this? I mean, because in the current administration, they're, they're doing certain things. Uh, it's really a continuation of the prior administration. And I want to avoid politics. Yes, but, but ultimately there is politics here. Yeah, you can't avoid it, Jason. It's, uh, it's, it, it's how do how do we? Get, you know, when when I saw President Trump go to North Korea, I was I was a little shocked. But you know what? I'm glad he did it. Yeah, I'm I'm glad he did it. I mean, well, some, I didn't know nothing else was working. Nothing else was working, and he he did it. Whether it worked or not, long term, I have no idea. But he did it, and we can knock it off the list of things and move on. Obama went to Cuba. Uh, did it make a difference? I don't know. I, I really I really do not know. Most people down there don't think so, but they're living in this cocoon as we live in a cocoon over here. So how do we amongst, let's say on this side, I can't do much about what's happening down there, but on this side, what advice do you have for people who are still willing to remain engaged in this space? Yeah that we can make something a little more fruitful for the U.S. as this process continues. Because, by the way, even on, on the side of the folks on the Biden side, I mean, I speak to a lot of them, but most people don't speak to each other. They, yeah, they, they, they even refuse to appear on panels together. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, that's there. You can start there, but I, you know, I, I put it this way. This is applies to Venezuela, too. You know, part of, part of, um, why Venezuela has been hard to move is that as horrible as it is, people are comfortable with the status quo. Hmm. And they're afraid of what could happen if they move away from the status quo. Hmm. And so I guess you have to start by asking, are, you, are we happy with the status quo? Maybe we are. Maybe this is great. <laughs> it's working for all of us, right? I, I personally don't think so. I agree. You got to start there. And so, okay. So if we agree that we really don't like status quo, then what's the alternative to that? And what does that look like? And probably we're gonna have different views of that. Um, and how do you do it in a way that is not existentially threatening? Because there is no 
easy fix to this. I mean, this notion that the United States can fix things, I, I think we probably demonstrated pretty clearly in Iraq and Afghanistan that even when we apply all of our resources and efforts, <laughs> yeah. we can't do that. Um, so the question then becomes, okay, so where do you want to go? Now, mm. you know, and, and the first answer is probably not going to be satisfactory. Well, we want basically, you know, uh, you know, couldn't, you've never been able to get off of, we want you to do what we want and you want us to do what you want. And so we're stuck. Mm. Um, and maybe, maybe it's smaller stuff like the things you're working on that, that, that start the process. I guess as most Cubans in Cuba, including inside the government, are not exactly happy with the status quo. Mm. Um, and I'm pretty sure that most Cubans who live, you know, who come to this country, for example, and their children and grandchildren, now great-grandchildren, probably aren't too happy with the status quo either. So that's a good place to start. You never know again where in politics or in the, this is like a it's even like war you never know how war is going to go i don't care how well you plan it there's a lot of military doctrine yeah. behind that a lot of a lot of doctrine behind political work as well you can have an excellent plan but human nature is human nature and yep. you said you said something there that i think is worth repeating so folks can chew on it a little bit that we can't force democratic change on countries people it just can't happen and uh, at least those of us who've been following this Cuba issue as long as we have, and some of us have lived it, um, it's it's generational. Uh, there's there's a whole, even this the idea behind the law that Caleb was talking about, well intentioned, but ultimately, in hindsight, you just can't export democracy in a box. I mean, it was law that was created for a different time, and. One of the ways some of us have thought about tinkering with this is to start even revisiting that. But even when you even mention that to anybody, they don't even want to touch the law either, or the fact that all options should be on the table. Yeah, and I mean everything. Uh, that it, it automatically locks down. How much of this do you think is is there a, a regionalism to it as far as here in the U.S.? Is there a state issue? Is there economics involved here, or is this more just hey, it's an old problem we don't want to deal with it wait for everybody to die over there and over here and then we'll figure it out i fear it's worse than that jason mm. i talked to someone literally like the week before i went into this job and i was talking about you know my aspirations for what we could achieve and he said oh caleb you clearly care about this and i and i admire you for that but Everybody's so cynical about this. Mm. They're, you know, what he basically was telling the people were happy with the status quo. That they were happy to make it work politically for politics and fundraising. Um, but that nobody really wanted to dig in and, and roll up their sleeves and do the hard work of figuring this out. Um, I think that was too cynical a reaction, but you know, part part of the problem is it's really important to some people, and it's clearly important to to people who have a tie to Cuba. It's honestly just not that important to most people, right? And so that's that's part of the problem right there, um, and that's you know. If things are shifting in Venezuela and they, you know, they may or may not move in a better direction. Um, hopefully they will, because you can't go backwards. That's the one thing you can't do. You can only go forwards. Um, in part, it's because the geopolitical dynamics shifted when Russia invaded Ukraine mm -hmm. and oil markets were roiled. That suddenly changed the calculus, the geopolitical calculus of this. 
and I, and I think made it more realistic, to be honest. Um, but absent real interests, it's hard to get people motivated to, to, to do these things. And honestly, the people who have the most interest in this are Cubans hmm. on both sides. We've been talking to Caleb McCary, foreign policy expert over at Pax Sapiens, also a longtime U.S. government, dedicated a lot of life to U.S. government service. We could keep going on and on with him, and we're getting close to the end. I wanted just to hone in on just a few more points on Cuba and then just some broader views on Latin America. Do you think it's possible in the next even with this administration, I mean, what's left off, which is probably the end of this one, let's see if they get reelected, see what happens with the next one. Do you think the Cubans in Cuba, as far as the people who are in a position to make more robust overtures, hypothetically for Republican wins, do you think there's room there with this new generation of wanting to do something different? Or let me ask it another way. Is this relationship that they have with the Russians and the Chinese a lot more important to them than the relationship they have with us? And for us, it's, look, we don't care. We can make ends meet now with the Russians, the Chinese. Let's just forget about these people and move on. I think that's a, an unacceptable position, if that is their position, that we allow that to happen. But I'm just curious what your thoughts are about the Russia-Chinese influence in the hemisphere. Is it as important as it used to be? So... In terms of your first question about, you know, the new generation of leaders um, in the Communist Party in Cuba, <laughs> going beyond, I would hope so. I think they should. Mm. Uh, as I say, I don't think they should be happy with where they are, um, and they ought to do something about that. I'm not telling them to capitulate. I'm just saying they probably ought to think about doing something about that. So it's it would be my hope that they would be open to a conversation. We're going to have to perhaps adjust our expectations of what that conversation is going to look like. Um, but on the Russia-China um, piece of this in the region, um, when, when I was working for the um, CEO of... Uh, Development Finance Corporation, which is a successor to the Overseas Private Investment Corporation. So it provides financing for private investment overseas. I spent a lot of time in Southeast Asia and, and Central Asia. And it was pretty clear to me that nobody there wanted us to come in and say it's us or them. Either you're with us or you're with the Chinese or, or the Russians. They have to live with those people. They're part of their economy. They're part of life, even when they don't really like it. Um, what they do want is for us to be there to provide them some balance and um, to help them be able to deal more effectively in their own interests with those countries. Um, the same is true in Latin America, but it's yeah. the other way around. The fundamental relationship is economically, and, and I think culturally too, is with us. Right. Um, and and it and it's a it's a long and complicated history. Um, you know, uh, which is, but they look at it the other way. I think that they would like to see the relationship with these other countries as balancing the relationship with us. Right. And so it's up to us. Right. To put our best foot forward. That's right. Yeah. Sometimes, I mean, do you think it's too broad a statement to say that at times the policy establishment or, and I'm not going to mean that in a pejorative way, I'm just saying just the people who do Latin America and the political people don't take the region. I mean, we say this all the time. It sounds cliche, but do we take it as seriously as we should? No, we don't. And it's always, you know, in the past, it was always because we never saw the region as a place for opportunity. Mm. 
We saw it as a place that was a source of problems, drug trafficking, illegal migration. Hmm. Um, and, you know, and we work to fix the problems. Okay. And, and there are some endemic issues as well, you know, particularly an incomplete um, adoption of a rule of law. And, and you know and, and at differing degrees in different countries um but um I, I will tell you this when i you know when the last thing the senator bob corker who was chairman of the senate foreign relations committee said to me he said you know caleb if i had taken all that time i spent in the middle east and spent it with you in latin america yeah you'd accomplish something amen yeah Yep. It's a region that is peaceful, incredible resources, mm -hmm. incredible people, um, talented, hardworking, a culture that is largely rooted in, in our Western traditions. Mm -hmm. We should be considering ourselves blessed. Yep. I mean, despite the challenges we have in the hemisphere and the unfair media coverage the hemisphere is given, because I think it's unfair. Um, you know that phrase, drugs and thugs and all that. You know, yeah. It's, uh, that's not what Latin America is. And in my dealings with businesses down there. No, heavens no. No, it's not like not that. at all, actually. No. And uh, it's, it's something that's incumbent on us, if you're right, to move the needle on that and I know I've found over the years working with lawyers down there, part of the reason our foundation, the Global Liberty Alliance, we started this thing about eight years ago, was to team with like-minded lawyers who are in these places, even in some places where the rule of law is not the best, because they're passionate, they want to fix it, and they want to be part of the fix. They don't necessarily want us to be telling them the government's corrupt. And frankly, where there's, there's corruption everywhere. No, of uh, course there is. There's corruption right here. Yeah, you don't um, have to go very far to find it. No, and and we've weaponized this region in a way that it's uh, given our enemies and our adversaries fertile ground to throw money around and uh, do things that we don't need them doing. And I think if we paid a little more focused attention on the region, like the for like former senator said, and you've said many times, we'd accomplish some pretty magnificent things. And the Russian, the Chinese will not find a happy place here because even in Cuba, even in Cuba, I would say the 90% of the lawyers we've dealt with, and we've dealt with a lot of lawyers down there, they just, they're eager to work with us. They don't, want, they don't want to deal with the Russians or no. less, and less the Chinese. They don't care for the Chinese at all. Uh, but they're eager to work with us, and they don't want to be dealing with um, Russians or even Europeans, believe it or not. I, uh, so a lot of people down there have told me, hey, at least you guys weren't here propping up the hotels and doing all these horrible things. Uh, we have this to deal with when the, everything changes. We're gonna we're, we're gonna we're gonna do accountability work. So I think we just gotta find more engaging ways to do things. Before I let you go, I want to toss an idea your way. Sure. Do you think the Cubans would ever go for folks like me to visit, for example, like let's say? The University of Havana Law School wanted to have a quote friendly debate with their people there, with our people over here. Would they ever, ever agree to something like that? I think they would, and they should. Yeah, and I've told would. them they should. <laughs> You're exactly who they should invite. Interesting. Um, they shouldn't be afraid of that. They should embrace it. That's what they should be doing. Listening to it, even a wider net from the people they usually deal with. Um, and the same thing we see over in Venezuela. So Caleb, you have any parting thoughts? Thank you so much. You've been so generous with your time. I know you have to get going, but again, at the beginning of the program, you gave some advice, but if there are people who are interested in, you know, they see a lot of negative news about politics and folks, what you see on TV is not the way things happen. Uh, what advice would you give them? I know we have a lot of young folks that listen to this, even people on the Hill, listen to this what what advice would you give them if they're thinking about walking away from this or uh or maybe a career in the foreign service do you recommend it that sort of thing what would you tell them 
What I would say is this, you know, in any group of human beings, you're going to find good ones and bad ones mm. in your own, you know, <laughs> your own family, your own political party. Mm-hmm. Um, just recognize that. And the other thing is, sorry, that's my beagle. Um, so I think I'll stop there because Buddy is, uh, is, is chiming in. It's time. <laughs> is he saying stay away? Yes, <laughs> I think so. Anyhow. <laughs> Probably All hungry. Right. Well, thank you so much. Okay, look, th- thanks, thanks for having us. I mean, thanks for having uh, time for us, and we look forward to chatting with you again, Taylor. Very good. Thank you so much. Take care. Take care.